As you turn to Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, chapter 52, Isaiah 52, here we are in another December, another Advent season. Sometimes uh, people call this the most wonderful time of the year for all kinds of reasons, the sights that we love to see, lights, uh, decorations, this changing of seasons. We can pull out all these clothes we haven't worn in a year so our fits look really lit and, and look at us, some new stuff that we've gotten since last year. The sounds, the special music that you can play only from Thanksgiving to Christmas. The joys and laughs and sounds of wrapping paper on Christmas morning or new loud toys that the grandparents buy the grandkids. The smells, baked goods, simmer pots, real Christmas trees are the fake ones that you spray with real Christmas tree scent. So much we love about this time of year. Students get their longest break outside of school um, during this, this holiday season. <coughs> Yet, it's also filled with things we don't love. You store the Christmas decorations somewhere, and you hope when you pull them out, there's not going to be critters that run out or evidence of critters in those Christmas uh, decorations. You hope the lights work. If not, you just throw away the whole strand of lights and go buy a new strand. You don't actually check each bulb, right? Or you buy LED lights. Man, those are life-changing. Um, the busyness. We have this, this uh, excuse that trumps all excuses to get out of anything right now, planning anything, scheduling anything. Whatever it is, if it, somebody thinks it needs to be done, you can just say, well, let's just wait till after the holidays. Doesn't matter how serious it is. You need brain surgery. Sorry, uh, it's going to have to wait till after the holidays. Your car's on fire. You need to buy a new car. I'm just not going to be able to. Too busy. I have to wait till after the holidays. You get to see family you haven't seen in a while, which isn't always a fun thing. <laughs> um, and, then, and then there's seriously things that are hard. Celebrating holidays while missing people that we love who are no longer with us. A lot of times because it's family that we only saw at the holidays and when they're not part of those rituals and traditions, we really miss them at this time of year. It's one of my favorite times of the year to have Sunday worship gatherings like this because gathering like this actually forces us to stop. This is, this is all year long, but in a, in a time of year when it's really busy with all this extra stuff, it really forces us to stop and pause and reflect and in a season where there really can be so much indulgence and silliness and shallowness, we spend too much money on things that we're not going to care about in four to six months, we're forced to draw our hearts and minds to what is ultimate, what is of ultimate value and worth, which is why we spend Advent talking a lot about Jesus. This whole season, this whole celebration hinges around and is centered in the arrival of Jesus into our world. And no amount of political correctness or secularism will change that because we as God's people into our dying breath will be shouting this from the mountaintops. It's all about him. We're celebrating at Christmas the invasion of our world by God himself. Joseph spent time uh, last week helping us to see this from the very beginning, how the arrival of Jesus was necessitated by our sin. But this was also promised by God. So at one of our lowest moments of humanity in a perfect environment with a perfect relationship with God, with all we could ever want or need, with no baggage from our past sins, our parents still chose to rebel against the God who made them, who walked with them in the cool of the day. And that one act of rebellion has led to catastrophic amounts 
of death and hurt and pain and chaos and grief and sorrow and sadness. Yet in the midst of that low point for humanity, God was there to show grace. There's always the presence of his grace in the face of his punishment. And he made the promise that we looked at last week, Genesis 3.15, I will put hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. There, there would be one to come, the seed of the woman. Notice the earthly father's not mentioned there, hinting at the virgin birth. The seed of the woman would come who would crush the serpent while suffering himself. And this promise was made to our parents, the first two humans, and would be passed down from generation to generation so that humanity and specifically God's people would live with the hope of this promise, the coming one who would crush the head of the serpent. And this promise will be repeated and details added throughout the history of God's people. If you notice when Sidney was reading during the Advent devotional time, passages, she read passages from the law, passages from history books, passages from the poetry of the Old Testament and the prophets all giving insight and details and prophecies about the one who would come. And so God's people lived with this expectancy of the arrival of the Messiah, the anointed one. In fact, Orthodox Jews today don't believe the Messiah has come because they don't believe Jesus was the Messiah. They're still waiting for these prophecies to be fulfilled. They're still looking and watching and wondering, when will he come? Old Testament prophecies about the arrival and life and ministry of Jesus, our Messiah, are all through the Old Testament, written at least 400 years before he arrived. Being of such detail, they're so beyond the control of a human trying to arrange their life to fulfill these prophecies because they speak of things that a normal human can't control. Where someone is born, how they are born, where they would grow up. And so what we have in Jesus, we don't have a, a good rabbi who says, you know, I'm a pretty good guy, and these people seem to like me, so I think I'll just claim to be the Messiah, and I'll arrange my life to fulfill some of these prophecies, and that'll give credence to my claim. You don't, you don't have that. What you have is God himself wrapped in flesh, ordaining a million different events to work out perfectly so that this baby who was born to this couple in Bethlehem would, in fact, fulfill all these prophecies and would, in fact, be the Son of God come to earth. And one of the most famous prophetic passages about Jesus is found in the book of Isaiah, written about 700 years before Christ showed up. And we're looking at that this morning, beginning in Isaiah 52, verse 13. See, my servant will be successful. He will be raised and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were appalled at you, his appearance was so disfigured that he did not look like a man, and his form did not resemble a human being. So he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths because of him, for they will see what had not been told them, and they will understand what they had not heard. Who has believed what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of a dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Yet he himself bore our sickness 
and he carried our pains. But we, in turn, regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him. And we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We have all turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment, and who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living, and he was struck because of my people's rebellion. This passage not only serves as an example of the kind of prophetic passages that exist in the New Test- Old Testament about the promised king and the hope of God to come and Jesus, but they're also a reminder that none of this happened by chance. All of this was perfectly ordained and arranged by our sovereign God who rules and reigns over all. This character that's described in this passage known as the suffering servant, Isaiah refers to the suffering servant the most and the clearest in this passage about who this suffering servant is, but also in a passage like Sidney read earlier, uh, Isaiah 42. Much debate even today among non-Christians, is this simply referring to the nation of Israel and their suffering that was still to come when this was written about 100 years later in the Babylonian exile? Or is this what we believe clearly messianic, talking about Jesus? But certainly as all prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament were, there's also some allusions to the nation of Israel. The passage begins with language that should be familiar to the readers of Isaiah uh, in verse 13 of 52. See, my servant will be successful. He'll be raised and lifted up and greatly exalted. That sounds just like Isaiah's language in Isaiah 6 when he saw the Lord in his temple high and lifted up and greatly exalted. And so this servant will be one who is exalted in the same way God was exalted in Isaiah 6. Yet, as verse 14 says, his physical appearance would be so marred and disfigured that he wouldn't look even like a human. One who's highly exhausted, exalted and one who's been severely wounded. And then more as we move on into chapter 53. Who has believed what we have heard and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Who will believe this? To whom will God's arm be revealed? God's arm is a reference to his power. God's eye would be his knowledge. His mouth is his voice, but his arm is his power. This servant who is to come is a revelation of God's power entering our world. Who will see this? Who will believe this is God's power? Verse 1 says, showing us, as verse 2 says, he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him. No appearance that we should desire him. The power of God as a young plant growing up out of dry ground, which would be a very weak looking plant because the dry ground is an allusion to it not being healthy, fertile soil. So a very scrawny looking plant coming up out of that dry ground. His physical appearance is non-impressive. Very, very common. He's not glowing. Jesus is not towering over people. He's, he's very common and not attracting desire. Unattractive, in other words. The arm, the power of God, so God's power on earth is this unattractive, undesirable servant. 
common person. Popular Mechanics did a study a bunch of years ago, probably 20 years ago now, and you can look at, you can Google it and find it online, where they, they tried to recreate what Jesus might have looked like from archaeological discoveries and digs from that part of the region, that, that period of time. And the thing, I, and they have an actual, uh, like, physical picture. You can, you can find it. But the thing that stood out to me was that the average height of a man in that region of the world at that period of time was five feet tall. Have you ever thought about Jesus as being five feet tall? No offense to anyone who is five feet tall. But that's probably not how we picture Jesus, this little guy. And so he's not this six-foot-six guy walking around among all the people, and people look at him like, oh, well, obviously he's a Messiah, he's a giant. He just looked like everybody else. Very, very common. I know you're thinking, man, if I could go back in time and teach them basketball, I could be like a Hall of Famer, but... But that's really what it was. No form or, or attention that, uh, or, or form about him that drew attention or physically attracted that made everyone say, of course he's the Messiah. Verse 3 goes on. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. He was scoffed at his entire ministry. From Nazareth? It's not even found in historical books outside of the Bible. That's how small of a town it was. Some people believe maybe only 50 people lived in the village of Nazareth. How can the Messiah come out of Nazareth, uh, Nathaniel said. Son of a scandalous marriage. She's pregnant. They're not married. Something's going on here. Unlearned in their schools. He's nothing. Dismissed. Unless... You had eyes to see and a heart to believe the power of God showing up in unexpected ways. By the way, it's the same today. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 1, For since in God's wisdom the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of what is preached. For the Jews ask for signs and the Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and wisdom of God because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. This was the plan, to bring about his redemption and salvation through Jesus in a way that only God would get the glory because it would come about through his power in his way that wouldn't be anything that sinful humanity would plan or attempt. It would be something clearly only God could accomplish. If we wrote the script, we would have Jesus be like King Saul, who was head and shoulders taller than everyone else. We would have Jesus come with military and ninja skills and destroy the enemies of God through brute strength or cunning skill. Yet the power of God shows up in truth and love compassion, suffering, sacrifice, and death. The power of God would come in strength that was humble and lowliness. And this was always the plan because this is who he was. This is written 700 years before Jesus showed up. We have no idea what the world would even look like in 700 years from now. But God knew. Verses 4 through 6 Show us what he came to accomplish. Yet he himself bore our sickness and he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, 
struck down by God and afflicted, but he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment was our, for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep, and we have all turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. The language is such a beautiful description. We were sick. We had pains. We rebelled. We had iniquities. We deserved judgment. We needed to be healed. We went astray. We want our own way. And yet, he bore this for us. He was struck down by God. He was afflicted by God. He was pierced. He was crushed. He was punished. Verse 7 and 8, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep silent before her shears, he did not open his mouth. And he was taken away because of oppression and judgment. And who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living and struck because of my people's rebellion. You see, Christmas can't really be understood or really celebrated if we only make it about a baby in the manger or if we only make it about the fact that God came down. Why? Why did he come? He came to bring sinful, broken humanity back to the God who created him. He came to restore what was broken in Genesis 3 and what we break every day through our sins. He came to accomplish the salvation and redemption of those who only deserve punishment and to turn billions of rebels into billions of worshipers. So that for all of eternity, the throne room of God would be filled with the worship of people just like us. Along with the Wanchi and the Baima and the Bonin and the Tongren and the Tibetan Jone. They will be there too. This is why he came. So God will be glorified, worshipped, and adored by all of redeemed, sinful humanity forever. One of the great descriptors of simple humanity is found in this passage, verse 6, where it says, We all went astray like sheep, and we have all turned to our own way. We all went astray like sheep, and we've all turned to our own way. This is the essence of sin. My way, not God's way. It's how we come into the world, hardwired to demand and insist on our way. It's one of the reasons that uh, the most important job as parents is to teach and demonstrate to our kids having your way, demanding your way, getting your way only leads to ruin. It may seem best to you, little one, in the short run, but in the long run, you really don't want to have a world where you get what you want all the time. And so when they are young, they learn the word no and they hate it. I mean, they hate that word, no. And some of your kids hate it much more than other kids, but they all hate it, even if the re their rebellion to the word no is very obvious, like with some, I won't name names, or it's very silent and hidden. Silent rebellion. But they all have to learn. They have to learn boundaries and consequences, and we as parents strive to be as consistent as possible. Otherwise, they will live confused lives because the boundaries keep shifting. But through our imperfect parenting, they learn there are higher authorities than, than you. When they're little, you can, like, physically move them. You know, no, you can't go there. I'm, no, I want to. Well, you're not. I can pick you up and move you. When they get older, it's a little different. 
but they have to learn. They don't rule their lives. But as parents, it's not just about control and rules. We also demonstrate love and grace. So they will learn, even through our imperfect and inconsistent examples, there is also a good, kind, loving father and king. And if you will live and enjoy life under his rule, there is blessing and joy and life. And all of this from a very young age begins to tune their hearts to feel and see something that as they get older will ultimately only be fulfilled by King Jesus. Yes, I am broken, but I am loved. And there is one who wants to fix me that is greater than mom and dad. And if I will believe him and listen to him and follow him and obey him and live with him, there is life and joy and blessing. And then we reach adulthood and we have that all figured out and we never struggle again. Right. Not right. Even as old and ancient as I am, we continue to bump up against the tension of our will and his will. But now we're older and we're smarter. We're more sophisticated. Certainly my will is more trustworthy now. I'm not just a dumb kid. I'm an old man. I know, as good as you know, God, I've been to seminary, right? And I don't like the boundaries that have been drawn around my life. We don't like the boundaries and limitations that have been drawn around our lives. I want more. I should have more. I deserve more. Well, I certainly don't deserve that. I'm tired of waiting. I want companionship now. I want money and financial security now. I want happiness now. I want friendship now. And if it's a little shady or sinful, that's mm, okay. See, as adults, we treat sin like a collection of china. We sin and we break one plate, but it's okay. All the other plates are fine. Just throw away that one plate and keep on eating. But sin is more like breaking a window. A window has to be repaired. A broken window leaves the house exposed to the danger, the elements, and trouble that could come through the window. It has to be repaired or dealt with immediately. And when we demand our way to meet our needs, even if it's sinful, we're just breaking windows left and right and leaving damage everywhere and leaving the house exposed to danger. But this is precisely what Jesus has come to repair and fix. First, by restoring our relationship to God, and second, by helping us restore our relationship with each other as much as is possible. And by helping us to see there is a way to life and joy and seeing all of our needs met, but it's on a path that is straight and narrow. It's on a path that he lays out that we have to follow. Yielding our hearts and minds to him and his way and not demanding our way. And in fact, seeing our way be so transformed so that over time what we find is that our way and our desires begin to more and more be one with him. So that over time we want what he wants and we desire what he desires and we love what he loves and we hate what he hates. One of my favorite Christian bands that sing explicitly Christian lyrics is the band Citizens. They wrote a song a few years ago called Relent, and it speaks to this tension that we feel because each of us, uh, that, that we feel between each of us going our own way versus finally and fully relenting to him. 
So I want to sing that real quick. Just kidding. I better read the words. They say, if I gain the world, would it be worth the price to work these hands to death and not be satisfied? If every effort brought another sleepless night, I'd be so tired. I have strived enough to know that this divide could never be repaired through countless second tries. And still I stay the cost avoiding what is right. And now I'm so tired. I'm just so tired. I have traded cherished truth for worthless lies, raging through the earth for treasure I couldn't find, wallowed in the mud for nothing but my pride, and I'm so tired. I'm just so tired. That is the life of choosing your own way. It's exhausting. It's never satisfied. And finally, he cries out, I relent. There's nothing for me here. You can have it. Oh, my life is not my own. You give life. That is worth the loss of mine. I surrender all I have to follow you. And then the struggle continues. I just want to live in peace, and I'm struggling to believe. Letting go will give me peace. Can I just sit here at your feet? Because this is right where I belong. Yeah, I can feel it in my soul. You say I'm right where I belong. And he goes on to screaming out, and I know that I belong. This is what we're doing today, just having a moment to sit at his feet and be reminded of who he is and who we are in him. And to know that we are his and life is ultimately found in him. Tim Keller put it like this, either God is God in your life where he calls the shots or you are God. That's it. Those are the choices. There's no third way. Every decision, every choice we make reveals what we believe is true. He's God or I'm God. Either your will is law and his will is advice, or his will is law and your will is advice. Or we say, I'll obey if it feels right, if it lines up with what I think is good and best for me. Thank you, God. I appreciate your input. But now I've got to figure this out because what I want is ultimate. Submitting to God's will and God's wisdom is I'll obey no matter what, even if it doesn't make sense, even if it doesn't feel right, even if I'm the only one. And so I ask you this morning, who is the shepherd and who is the sheep in your life? Who's leading and who is following in your life? Jesus came for a bunch of us sheep who keep trying to run off on our own. He just keeps chasing us down and bringing us back to help us see what Psalm 100 verse 3 says. Acknowledge that the Lord is God. He made us and we are his, his people, the sheep of his pasture. And Jesus accomplishes this by what this whole passage speaks about. His substitutionary, sacrificial death in our place. The shepherd dying for the sheep. Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christmas is about this reality, that God came to do this for us, his people, and for those who have yet to hear, for them to become his people. No one has died like Jesus. No one is as innocent as he is. No one is as sinful as we are. No one ordained and fulfilled hundreds and hundreds of prophecies to die 
at the precise moment as a substitutionary sacrifice for people who only deserve this, not because we're good enough, we only deserve this for us because we are simply image bearers. And that was is the most that and that what is the most broken inside of us can be the most repaired by him. You say, yeah, I still sin though. So much. It makes me feel like I don't even deserve this or I've lost it or or he doesn't love me anymore. The sacrifice is no longer for me. I'm still so broken and so weak. I still desire sin so much. And this world, like, are you kidding me how broken the world is and filled with sin? Like, what kind of redemption is this? Can you imagine the grief of the garden? When our first parents first sinned in a perfect environment with no baggage from their past, no parents to blame, no sin nature to blame, it was heaven on earth. And in this one act, the world was forever changed. Can you imagine the grief that God felt? We see this later in Genesis 6, right before he judges the world in the flood. He grieves that he has made mankind in this way. Jesus grieves the death of Lazarus, the effects of sin, knowing he's about to raise Lazarus. There is a right and good place to lament the sin and the brokenness that still exists in us and then in the world. There is a place to have some level of sorrow and angst. This desire that I have more and more the older I get, I wish I could just snap my fingers and fix it in your life or in the lives of others in our world. But part of how we deal with that is to see the reality of Jesus in this mess with us. And so as dark as it seems at times, it's never completely dark because of Jesus. The lights never go out because of Jesus. Many times in the movies like Lord of the Rings and other movies we love, it, it gets to this tension where it's so bleak, it's so dark. You're like, I don't know if the good guys are going to win. But it's never completely dark. There's always reason to hope because of Jesus. He's with us in the mess that we are and with us in the mess that is in this world. And just like God's people waited and waited and waited for the advent, the coming of the Messiah the first time, their hearts filled with the hope at the promise of his coming. So we also, as God's people, continue to wait and be filled with hope at the sure promises of his word. He is coming again. That what we're experiencing right now is not all that we'll ever experience. It will get better for us. Revelation 21, 3 and 4, I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Revelation 22. Then he showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the city's main street. The tree of life was on each side of the river, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree are for the healing the nations, and there will no longer be any curse. That's where we're headed. And the same Jesus who will be with us forever in that place is with us right now in the worst of life. 
Do you live today with this hope? Because Jesus is alive inside of you. Does it allow you to celebrate Christmas like no one else? Because you get what it's really all about. You understand why Jesus came. And you sing. And you celebrate. And you give. And you serve. And you sacrifice for the good of others. So they too can celebrate the hope that we have in Jesus. And if that's not the reality of your heart and your life today, know that Jesus is here again to save those who would repent of their sins and trust in him. So, Jesus, I pray for that right now. If there be anyone here who doesn't really celebrate the fullness of Christmas because they, they never really embraced who you are and why you've come, I pray for them specifically that today would be the day of their salvation. Today they would repent and turn from their own way to trust in the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. The one through whom no one can come to God, but, but through you, Jesus. Let that be true of all of us. Make it a fresh reality for everyone who's gathered with us this morning and worshiping Jesus so that, so that we sing with a new love and a new vibrancy and a new hope. Because we, we realize and we appreciate and value once again this incredible work Jesus has done on our behalf. And we leave here transformed even more with greater joy that we can share with others. Do all of these things because you love us. And you are for us. And you desire to use us so that others would know you. Help us, Father, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.